Welcome back, everybody. I am uh, very excited. Uh, and again, my voice is not very excited because I'm actually kind of pretty chill right now. That's that's my energy at the moment. But I'm very excited because today is, is a special show. Uh, I get a chance to do two things uh, that we haven't done before. I get a chance to speak to an actor who I've admired and liked uh, since 2008 in uh, Austin basis, uh, who, will, uh, who will talk to in a second. And uh, today, and he, marks our 50th interview on the show. So it's uh, it's a great occasion, yeah. Pat myself on, on the back. Pat yourself, uh, I'll pat you on the back. Thank Special you, thank you. Of course. Yes. So welcome to the show, Austin. I, I really am happy that you are, uh, you're the 50th. Um, I really liked the, you know, the film that I saw you in, which we'll get into a little bit uh, you know, later. And uh, it's, it's befitting, it, it really is, uh, it feels good. Well, it's uh, how, when did you start this thing? This is you didn't start this that long ago, right? And to get through fifty actors, it's pretty impressive. Uh, it's May twentieth. May twentieth. Uh, you know, uh, Michael Kostroff was the first uh, interview. Uh, God bless him. He's a wonderful human being, and he was uh, the first. And I kind of started going at a breakneck pace. And um, you know, you you represent me entering the next phase where I'm not going to be doing five or six uh, episodes a week. I, I can breathe now, I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've gotten, what is this, the silver anniversary? I, th I think so, oh, I don't old, know. I don't know, 25, 25 is silver, maybe. I, we're, we're supposed to look that up. I don't know, I don't know. Listen, you know, what, what kind of a guest are you? Are You're not even sure what the anniversary gift is. I'm, I'm, you know, this is not good on your end. That's right, so, I'll, I'll send you a, a silver uh, medallion. Sounds great. I, I would appreciate that. Yeah. See, that's what happens, right? You get to a certain level of shows, and now you start asking gifts, uh, you know, from the guests that you bring on. Absolutely not. I'm yeah. not doing it. Um, My presence is not enough for you, Alan? Uh, it's more than enough. I'm, I'm just grateful that you're on, man. That's, that's again, I'm, I'm doing this because it, it feels surreal to me. And uh, we'll get into uh, kind of your part in a second. Uh, but it feels surreal that literally, you know, two and a half uh, months ago, I, I was sitting here thinking it would be great to talk to some people who I've, you know, who I've watched and who I've admired and get a chance to ask them some questions about their career, about their life. What's it really like on set? What works for them? What doesn't? And, you know, now is this, I, I sometimes look at my life and think, what the hell is happening? It, it doesn't seem real. It's, it's yeah. a very interesting feeling. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. Uh, it's pretty awesome to, to find in, in, this, uh, in this time of quarantine or uh, whatever they'll call it years from now, um, the time of coronavirus, uh, yeah. that all these creative outlets and uh um products have come out of this um yeah. one of them being the connection of people uh kind of moving beyond the 140 160 characters uh and really reaching out and connecting whether it's through instagram lives zoom calls go to meetings or interview shows like yours it's i think there's also creative ventures being done i think there's a slight limit to that but I think the connection of people who enjoy acting and uh, filmmaking and, and, and TV, it's, it's, this is a fun way to share that stuff, um, especially when so much of us, including myself and my wife, have depended on 
TV and films to to get us through these past six months, to, you know, as a time of sitting in your house. You know, there's only so much time I could do drawing or, or writing. Um, I, I like to kind of turn off and turn on the TV and or the computer or the Roku or the Apple TV or whatever people yeah. use. Um, yeah. And just binge a show, watch a movie you've always wanted to see, rewatch a movie or a TV show that you you miss and want to kind of get nostalgic about. It's a interesting time. Absolutely. I've done the same. And by the way, uh, Amazon Prime and Netflix, we didn't want to miss you. We love you. We'd love for you to be a sponsor. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Moving on. So absolutely. I, I I watched kind of the new shows that I wanted to uh, to watch uh, once, you know, you know, billions uh, uh, as other productions got halted. So I couldn't watch, you know, the rest of those. But that's how I got onto uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which was an amazing show. I discovered it because I had uh, time. Um, I, st I started re-watching uh, some shows that I love. I am, I am halfway through West Wing again. I knew you were going to say that. It's, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very predictable. I, I, when, when, people, uh, when people watch the show, they know exactly what I'm going to say. There has to be at least one West Wing reference. Yeah. Uh, what, what I haven't done, and I haven't uh, come up with a, a little thing yet, but I will, like in Psych, which is uh, my, you know, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Yeah. Uh, in Psych, there has to be uh, there has to be a pineapple or at least a reference to it in every episode. I need to start doing something like that. So far, West yeah. Wing has done that for me. Yeah, there it is. That's all you need. Yep, that's it. Perfect. All right. So let's let's get to you. Uh, how does a nice Jewish kid growing up in Brooklyn who wanted to be a backstop for the Mets? Who went to school to be a doctor end up an actor? Well, um, <laughs> I could recite to you my uh, um, <laughs> so my uh, my college essay was that um, a lot you know when I was applying to all these grad I mean not grad schools but uh, you know you have a college essay I think it was undergrad um, but my college essay started with or the, the kind of thesis statement was, um, I not only want to be a doctor in real life, but I also want to play one on TV. Um, because I was going pre-med and, and uh, uh, you know, growing up with, with diabetes uh, led me down that path. But I think even before I, had, I, I was diagnosed with diabetes, I grew up in a family and, uh, um, a, just a community that appreciated theater every you know every year for the Christmas holiday week we'd go see a musical um, my parents did plays uh, when I was a kid uh, my favorite holiday was Halloween and uh, I mean I love magic and I loved uh, um, you know dressing up and 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 that type of stuff and makeup and um i would even like collect my mom's and grandmother's old makeup in you know like this is like makeup right i i wouldn't use it as like lipstick and i would use the red lipstick for blood you know and do it coming down my my mouth to, to be a vampire and get like the glow-in-the-dark vampire teeth um and i lived close by to a, a costume place that i would 
go to frequently. Um, and I would always get it, you know, something. And for like my birthday, when I had some, you know, money in the, in the, the piggy bank, I would get like a mask or, so we had a Batman mask. We had a gorilla mask. Um, and I had multiple capes. I had Superman underoos, you know, like I would keep the red cape. I, I would keep the black cape. I had a I had red and black, one for Superman, one for Dracula. Um, but yeah, it was a constant thing where, you know, I think, you know, I can't speak for kids coming over my house, but everyone knew I had a costume chest. And so when people would visit my, my parents, you know, friends with kids that would come in from Long Island and New Jersey um, and visit for the day on, on a Sunday or Saturday, they knew they were coming over and that there was going to be costumes to dress, dress up and, and put on. And um, I didn't have many tutus for the girls, but, uh, you know, I think uh, it was it was a constant creative um, creative expression that was welcomed and and you know encouraged in a sense because it wasn't like you know i was going out and doing bad things it was we were playing in in the playroom with costumes and and occasionally we would put on shows for the adults or i had a front porch that was like three steps up and we would do um performances that we had practiced um for our neighbors and our parents um you know, that happened less frequently. That took a lot of organization. So I'm much more of an actor, writer, as opposed to an organizer, producer. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, and, and so growing up, I also played sports. Um, you know, dare I say that would be my first love, baseball. And, um, you know, that was the main sport I played growing up. I also played basketball and hockey. Um, but baseball, uh, you know, if I had to choose one sport that I played and enjoyed watching, it would be baseball. Uh, my dad was a huge Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Uh, when they left, he was felt betrayed. But then the Mets came along, and he's been a Mets fan since 1962. And so my brother and I, when we were born, we were born to bleed blue and orange. Um, and so those are the Mets colors. And just, I think we lucked into a time period when the Mets were really a good team. Um, early eighties, not so much mid to late eighties. They were one of the best teams in the, in the, in the majors. And so growing up playing literally watching the Mets and seeing them, you know, especially in 1986 when they won the world series, um, my favorite player and still to this day, my favorite player of all time was catcher Gary Carter um, only played for the Mets for like, six years five or six years but um hall of fame catcher uh great guy they called him the kid um he had a smile on his face all the time played through injuries but he he was like the guy who didn't need to do the fanfare and celebrate played the game played it hard um and didn't feel the necessity which i feel like is a weird thing in the majors uh, where you can't show joy or you can't like show discouragement uh, when something goes wrong or you, you know, it, it's a professional game. So some people like, and kids growing up playing Little League, you're taught to like tamp that stuff down. Like you can't, you know, 
can't cry, don't cry, or, you know, like when you hit a home run, you can't celebrate too much because it's like, yeah. you know, so it kind of takes those, that spectrum of emotions and whittles it down to this like narrow thing where it's only now an internal love of the game and appreciation and stuff. And yeah. um, I wish it was different, but he, he always had that smile on his face and they called him the kid. So he was, uh, he was a kid at heart. Um, and so as an actor too, I feel like I still strive to, to incorporate that into my work and that sense of play and that sense of imagination, you know, and then as I got older, I was a late bloomer. And so all those hopes and dreams of, and I was good. I, you know, I played, I was like, you know, usually one of the best on the team, if not the best, one of the best in the league that I played in. Um, and I just, as the years developed through my, you know, early teens and late teens, I just got outsized and out um, developed. And I feel like, you know, I felt at that time, I'm like, wow, just because I'm hitting puberty later than everyone else means they're better than me or they can hit the ball farther than me. And they're regarded as, um, you know, just because they're developing quicker, they're better. They're considered better because um, of all those reasons, they're faster, throw the ball harder and hit the ball farther, which are some of the requirements that make you good. But at that age, when, you know, you're a late bloomer, you know, you fall behind the curve and you either catch up when you do, you know, kind of go through puberty and develop or you find something else that makes you happy. And and I think that's where um, that's where I really dove into acting in college when I didn't make the baseball team. And um, I mean, I tried out for every position. That was probably my problem. Because they they did pitching tryouts first, and I threw out my arm, um, oh. and so all the other tryouts were later, and so I wound up just trying out for catcher and catching the ball the whole time. And you know, I, I was small, so my I wasn't fast, and it was a whole combination of elements that you know pushed me, and and you know, like made the decision clear that you know maybe I'll play sports and play baseball, which I wound up doing in LA with my brother out here in an amateur league. But, you know, it's the pure enjoyment of the game and watching it as a fan. But it was really, what can I do as a career that's gonna make me happy and in which I'll also be able to make a living. Um, And to me- Acting? (laughs) Well, at that point, I only had two choices. I mean, I, I tell you, I took every science course. Um, I took one semester of every science course. Um, I think with bio and chem, I took them at the same time. Didn't turn out well. Um, I thought I'd take physics first because I was better at math and actually did pretty well at physics because um, mm-hmm. math was a subject that I excelled at and came easy. Ironically, as an actor, English and the stuff like usually theater majors are English majors or minors or are avid readers and and creative writers or history buffs like you know people that um, enjoy those two subjects and I would say maybe history is my second favorite so actually science was so it was math science history and then English was last because I was a slow reader and I just it just 
you know, it was a, it, it's still a struggle today as a reader. I probably have some sort of, you know, um, you know, dyslexia or, uh, you know, learning disability, but, you know, I have to read, so I do. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so getting through college and, you know, coming back to acting and following through on that education and um, really making the choice and calling my parents junior year and saying, this is it. If, I, if I'm going to succeed at this, I have to major in it and I can't, I can't be just good at everything. I have to try to be great at one thing, um, which had been a, which had been a habit of mine. And it still is in a way. It's like a fallback. It's a fall, a fail safe where if I'm just good at a lot of things, I could tout that as, uh, you know, an ego boost. Right. Um, but when it comes down to career and succeeding and excelling at the highest level, you can't really just be good at something. You have to at least be on the path to greatness and try to be as as good as possible. And if not, keep trying, like keep taking class. Like, you know, Tim will tell you like um, that stuff, you'll. It's a lifelong um, journey towards not perfection, but perfecting, you know, perfecting the science that, you know, and, and this this kind of uh, art of reenacting life. Yeah, very cool. A uh, few things, because I know uh, coming back into what uh, uh, some of the things that you mentioned, uh, for those who are DC uh, fans, they're going to immediately jump all over you and say, I'm sorry, Superman also had a black cape too. You know, Superman had both. Right. So that's we right. acknowledge you. If you're watching, we hear you. We understand you. We're moving on. So that's, yes, that's that was when I was like six years old. I wasn't quite aware of the different <laughs> in incarnations of Superman um, or the different comic book versions of him. Um, yeah. Sorry. No, no, it's don't yeah. apologize to me. I just wanted to make that known so we don't get you know a, a lot of comments in that regard for that specific thing. Yes. Uh, second thing is uh, it's it's very cool um, that you were taking things seriously because I have been blessed and cursed with being good at many things, and it's it's always been a struggle to figure out what it is that one thing that I want to focus on. And I, I get it. And for you to say, no, I'm going to do this uh, to, to guts. And I really, really appreciate that and respect you for it. Yeah. And my mom really was the one, too, that was like, what are you going to fall back on? I was like, if I have a fallback, I will fall back. You know, yeah. if I have something to fall back on, I will fall back on, it. you know. <laughs> and so, like, the, the choice was clear. And, you know, with encouragement from my my teachers in undergrad uh, that um, one of my teachers, Gene Lesser, um, who passed away a year or two ago, um, unfortunately, but he he's like, you have wildly great instincts. You're amazingly talented, but yeah. you're lazy. He used to call me lazy. And I still he's still on my shoulder whenever I'm slacking or need to do the work um, that says, you know, there's going to be 10 other actors like you that walk into any audition, um, any room that are trained, prepared, and have worked harder than you. So the only 
option is to at least stay stay level with them where you do the work you put in the time and um in those days as opposed to auditions i think it was more of like continuing my education and going to grad school um which is where i met tim um at the actor studio drama school uh ironically which is the only grad school i got into um shows all those other guys now right that uh rejected my my um submissions and my auditions for juilliard yale uh nyu columbia rutgers you know i didn't audition for that many but i auditioned for some of the best and um you know and maybe that wasn't my time to do that but i think i found the right place and right home in the actor studio drama school because i and I still have a relationship with the actor studio as a member, and it's a never ending um, uh, collaboration and community of professional actors that are just there to continue to hone their craft. And yeah. you don't have to pay for it. That is very important in, in our industry where there's a lot of classes, there's a lot of, you know, theater groups, there's a lot of teachers and coaches, but to have an institution where you can go every week and get any number of, you know, put up scenes, get comments from your contemporaries, uh, get, you know, rehearsal training, dialect training, sensory training, like acting, method acting, kind of sensory work, workshops, um, and a number of other things, even through the even through the uh, quarantine and through the pandemic, we've done, I've done classes online that have been just as gratifying and just as um, productive and, and uh, inspirational for me, honestly, because that's really what it is. When you're not working, you're watching and you get inspired by the work of other people, not only to do better work, but to work harder and to, um, to excel at your craft. Yeah. That's amazing. I did not know that uh, that you could do that. Again, you're a lifetime member of the uh, yeah. you know actor training, but um, I didn't know that uh, it's it's free and it's included. That that is a very a rare uh, thing. Absolutely, you have to be uh, a member. You have to get in as a member, though. Right. Like that's that's yeah. Yeah, yeah not you have to, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but I I owe the show uh, kind of to uh, to your plays because. You know, I watching James Lipton on uh, Inside the Actor Studio. Um, those are the types of interviews that I wanted to do. I wanted to really speak and dive deep, and uh, you know, not do five-minute uh, kind of segment conversations. So, yeah. in 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 a very direct way, uh, this show was born because of what I've seen uh, James do. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, James, <laughs> like he's just. He is like he is on the show in real life, you know. Um, he passed away recently, so um, that was. I think he passed the torch enough with the the show, but I think more importantly than the show is the appreciation of the craft of acting, and not just the celebrity and the achievements of actors. Um, yeah. And I think that a show like this, like yours. Um, I appreciate and um, enjoy because it's about the real life 
you know, struggles and, and achievements and um, battles uh, of the, you know, uh, you know, your middle class actor um, who's out there trying to get better as an actor, but trying to make a living. And, um, and I think that's what his show was at, at a very high level, um, having, you know, Academy Award winners and all that on the show um, to find out how they got to where they were. Um, and that was really helpful as a student to see all these people that I had looked up to um, and still do um, to see how they started, what their, the, the, the struggles and, you know, um, obstacles that they faced in their career that they overcome to get where they were. Um, and it was funny because for years in acting class, you'll get the look to your left, you have to look to your right. One, only one of you is going to make it in this industry. Um, yep. but that was even the, that was even generous. Um, uh, when I would take most, my first acting class in, uh, or theater class in college was theater history. And it was a 9 a.m. class on a Monday morning. And I walk in and the, the professor is, was the, you know, tech, the guy in charge of tech for the theater department. He did lighting. He did, you know, the, the, um, the more behind the scenes stuff. And the first thing he says, most of you who are theater majors um, are probably not gonna make it as an actor. So you should plan to have uh, other theater and, you know, career options. And it's, you know, the idea that to walk into an interview with, um, yeah. uh, with Richard Dreyfus uh, and him, encouragingly and enthusiastically saying this is before streaming this is before web series all the different outlets that actors can actually make a living he was like there is an opportunity to make a living as an actor he's like i'm proof of that you know when i was coming up only good looking people and movie stars made a living everyone else had a you know fight over scraps but he the one thing i remember him saying was you can make a living as an actor. Um, it's possible for all of you. And no one's ever said that. And, you know, those interviews would throw out gems and nuggets and pearls that I feel like um, I held on to and kept. And um, obviously, when someone's talking to you, you always think they're talking about you. Even when they're like, look to your left, look to your right, one of you is not going to make it. And even Tim said, is like, you know, I mean, one of you, well, only one of you will be doing theater and when, you know, or acting in 10 years. And Tim and everyone like me was like, it's me. You're yeah. not doing it. You're not doing it. It's me. But that's how people think. It's like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Um, so when someone says all of you can make a living as an actor, that those are, that's an encouraging uh, statement from, an Oscar nominated and um, seasoned veteran like Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <clears throat> was Tim sitting next to you uh, in those classes? I just want to make sure that he wasn't one of the one Whoa. of the. Uh, actually, Tim and I. Um, so we're talking about Tim Davis. Uh, we we haven't said his last name in this, but Tim and I are both members of the Actors Studio. But before we were members, we were uh, in our class was called Cohort Five. Um, so we were the fifth 
graduating class of the Actors Studio Drama School when it was at uh, the New School University. Um, it's at Pace University now. Yeah. So Tim and I actually did a thesis project. Um, so our rep season, our repertory season, in our final semester of the third year uh, would be to present. It's like your, you know, your final thesis. You do as an actor, you choose a scene with another actor. It has to be two actors. Um, a director uh, would choose their scene and they would cast actors in it. And we also had playwrights in the program. And so not only actors, directors, but also playwrights, the collaboration of those three skills and, and professions, um, I think helped me enormously as an actor and you know series regular on TV and uh, being a collaborator with a director and an actor or creating a character um, with someone, not just getting a script and, you know, having to scramble and create it on your own, but it's mm -hmm. like this three-way dialogue um, of the actor, director, and writer. Um, we were lucky enough to be picked for a playwright's thesis. Um, and so Tim in grad school, Tim is only a year or two older than me. Um, but in grad school, I looked much younger, no beard, a lot skinnier. Um, I was getting cast as like teenagers. Um, and then for 10 years after that, I was getting cast as teenagers. So um, I played Tim's stepson uh, in, a, uh, in a thesis project by a playwright called Safe um, about a stepfather and a stepson who had lost um, steps, the stepfather had lost his wife and the, the stepson had lost his mother and the stepson, my character, was acting out um, and bordering on violence, like physical violence and starting to kind of go off the deep end. And it was this uh, dysfunctional uh, impasse between these two, two people, that two characters that um, was a kind of either we come together and make this work and try to make this weird situation where, you know, I'm not old enough to be your father, but I'm gonna be your father and you're gonna behave and listen to me and we'll both mourn the loss of your, your mom and together. Um, so it was, it was funny, but it was also really poignant and, and, you know, the best of what, I think contemporary theater offers is that real look inside of, you know, the the tragic circumstances that people find themselves in and how they come out of it. Um, sometimes, you know, begrudgingly, but usually with a little humor and a little hope. Um, and I think those are the stories I gravitate toward. And I, I definitely wanted to say this, Tim. When I knew Tim was, I always thought of Tim as one of one of the actors in our class that was going to do well, you know, he, I think he fancied himself, uh, Sean Penn. Um, you know, he, Sean Penn was a huge role model for Tim as an actor, not necessarily as a person, but I think Tim took the person part literally <laughs> in, in college. He'll tell you himself. Um, but I think he's evolved into, uh, the the person that takes the acting um, the acting skills of of a Sean Penn 
as a role model, but um, as a method actor and, and someone who is going to go 150, 200% for every role, Tim had to play a character that was less nimble than me, right? And so, and, and much older than himself. So he was in his 20s at the time. He had to play a character in his late 30s. Um, I was, you know, supposed to be a teenager. So we had to find a way to make the two or three years between us into 20 or 15. Yeah. And so um, I obviously grew my hair really long and shaved the sides and had like a flop top. Um, yeah. And and Tim on his side, which I thought was, was kind of uh, um, a genius choice, I remember him wrapping his knees with tape every night because um, I'm not sure what his backstory was as the character, but the choice had a real practical purpose because at one point in the scene, he chases me around the living room and he can't catch up to me. And he needed, as a very nimble athlete, he was a football player, um, mm. and judo, and, and at that time, judo, but not, uh, not mm. MMA or jujitsu yet. Um, but he was more, he was quicker than me. And so he had to find a way to be not as quick. And instead of trying to fake it, he wrapped his knees as tight as he could. So it would encumber him to the point where it was a struggle for him to get up, get to me, you know, catch me. Um, because the character gets really mad at me and he wants to, he wanted, he didn't want to have to get really mad and then have to hold back. Um, so things like that to to make practical choices like that um, was a lesson I I got from him early on uh, that I'd rather make as many real choices that inform my my character my character decisions and emotions than I I'm gonna try to make something up or make some imaginary circumstance that's not there I'd rather have a phone in my hand than try to make believe I'm having a phone in addition to having an emotion and a thought process and all this stuff. Like there's so many things that you need to make believe and, and expand your imagination as an actor, the more actual practical things you could have that, you know, free you up, um, mm -hmm. I think is important. And, and Tim, Tim definitely uh, was an early uh, influence on that. Um, those choices in my career. That's that's a great choice. Um, good job, Tim. If you're watching this, and uh, I guess you know. He better. I watched his whole interview. Yeah, and his interview was two hours. Well, well, ours is doing is doing pretty well. We'll see how long this goes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I I have to ask this uh, the stupid question, but that came to mind, so I'm gonna go with it. Uh, was was there any point because I know you two are friends that you still call him Pop or you know nothing like that? No. Um, uh, I forget his name. Is I know my character was Wally. Um, and he used to call me Wallace. The character, like I forget, I, he had a weird name, like Lane, or it was like a a weird um, Kern. I think his name was Kern. So it was like an intentional choice for my character was Wally. He would call me Wallace as yeah. an annoying thing, and then I would call him Kern um, instead of like Dad. Got it. That's very funny. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's uh, come back to uh, to uh, to your kind of career uh, yeah. arc. 
um, because there are a lot of gold uh, things there that I want actors to uh, to experience. Um, when when you told your parents saying, "Hey, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna really be studying uh, this as opposed to being a doctor," uh, yeah. I know you mentioned that your mom uh, and your dad were both kind of uh, putting on uh, theater performances earlier on. Were they supportive? Uh, you know, did they try to uh, you know talk you out of it? What, what was their reaction? Well, I, I you know I. I I mentioned that my my mom specifically um, was she had done theater in college too and okay. in high school um, in New York in Brooklyn there's a thing called Sing it's where each grade puts on a show and competes against the other grades and they they write it direct it it's all student run produced the music is played by students and we did it at my school too but her school you know obviously. 30 years before me or 25 years before me, um, she had done it at her school and they were both, I think, had normal careers, um, but they were creative and, and aspiring enough to, I think, at least give me the room to try it out. Um, and, and again, my mom cautioned or encouraged uh, me to have something to fall back on and um like we said i was like if i have something to fall back i'm gonna fall back and you know mm -hmm. if there's a net to catch me you know i'm i'm gonna fall um you know and so uh but i think there came like my first play in undergrad um wasn't until my junior year because i was again new york mm -hmm. brooklyn accent i kind of toned it down since then um unless I'm in Brooklyn and talking to friends and it gets a little loose or I have to use it for a character. Um, but she, um, they both came up to see me in a production of Brighton Beach Memoirs, um, which kind of fell right into my wheelhouse. It was a Brooklyn, I grew up by Brighton Beach. You know, um, I knew the area, obviously the story takes place 40, maybe 50 years before um, I grew up there, but I get a sense of the Jewish household, the um, the dynamics and, you know, that life and the, the character and the idea of having being a, an older brother to a younger brother. And so I played the older brother in, in Brighton Beach. And, you know, I had auditioned for the for to be Eugene Morris Jerome. Um, but I, I got the part of Stanley. And so I am a, an older brother in real life. And it kind of just fell right into a place that was comfort comfortable for me. The only thing I had to do the leap was the circumstances of the play and that time period and um, what the character was going through. And so, uh, you know, with a couple of acting classes under my belt that I never had, I never had any, you know, basics. Um, I started implementing all those things that I was learning in the, you know, my, I think desire to to go 150 to 200 percent um, and really be full in character to the point where the guys smoked Lucky Strikes um, and you know they have fake cigarettes that actors use on stage. I got yeah. real Lucky Strikes um, because I just that's I just again if I'm smoking Lucky Strikes and I can get Lucky Strikes. Why do I have to make believe that a Marlboro Light is a lucky strike? Um, 
And so, yes, it was awful on my voice. And there was only like, I think six productions total separated by a weekend. Um, but that was a play that they came up to visit. And I think they saw for the first time the potential and my, you know, my abilities after two and a half years of acting class or two years of acting classes and, you know, moving beyond just memorizing lines and acting like what you're saying is real and, you know, being, uh, having stage presence. I always had, always had good stage presence or I was told and I felt part of that stage presence was, you know, performative. It was showing other people, you know, why I belonged here, like how good I was. In a, in a, in a nutshell, I was just trying to draw attention away from all the other actors with how good I was. I wanted to be the best, right? I'm very competitive. And so mm -hmm. my stage presence when I was a kid was, you know, confession, merely a way of thinking of everyone looking at me at that moment. So assuming everyone's looking at you, you can't break character, yeah. right? So that helped me going forward, but then I moved into the area of how would I feel in this position? How does this character feel? Is it the same? Um, what, where, where is the range of emotions? What is my, what is the stimulus? Is it something my father's, my, the character's father said, or my brother, or what happened at work? And can I relate to what happened at work, him getting fired? Or do I have to substitute something that happened to me in real life? Um, and so with all those things thrown into the mix, I, I feel like my parents saw that um, that work paying off. And I think really were, were impressed to the point where they took my choice seriously to the point of encouraging it full heartedly. Um, and then the success of plays I did in, in college as well. But I think that was a turning point too, because junior year, you have to, you know, kind of declare a major and that's when I did it. And so, um, that was when I, was in Brighton Beach Memoirs. And so I feel like, I feel like that was the point. I don't know when it was for them, but um, they've never been anything but supportive. Um, it, early on, financially, letting me live at home for as long as possible um, through grad school um, and even a little afterwards. And yeah. so I think that gave me at least a cushion of support, not necessarily financial, because I mean, at some point I'm like, I'm paying my own bills. I'm paying my, I'm not paying for the room. That was the, the big help. Um, but they're coming to see all my productions. They're supporting when I have to work. And then when I have to take off work and, you know, um, knowing that I'm making up enough money to do stuff for free. And then when I run out of money, making more money to do more stuff for free. No, that's that's great that they supported you. I I'm I'm very happy about that. Um, they're my biggest fans. Huh? I said they're my biggest fans. You know. Yeah. Well, you rewarded them. Your first project, uh, you rewarded all of their faith in you with a project called Porn and Chicken. I wonder how that yes. went over. <laughs> well, uh, well, that was that was I was like interesting because I'd work I had started working with my managers, um, Sandy Erickson and. Vic Ramos. Um, mm -hmm. 
shortly after school, we do a lot of, uh, most grad schools do showcases where agents, casting directors, um, managers come to see a showcase of the, the, the graduating class. And then they get a sheet, you know, a whole breakdown bio resumes and all that. And then they'll request contact information for the people they're interested in. And so after my showcase, I got a couple of um, responses, but most of it was for commercial work, um, which is fine. I got sent out for a little bit, didn't make, didn't do anything early on. Um, mm -hmm. But I graduated in 2001, so 9-11 um, happened. Uh, and I had, through a, a family connection, a person my dad worked with was supposed to meet managers. And so um, the managers that I met were Vic Ramos and Sandy Erickson. And, you know, that I'm still, uh, Vic had pa passed away shortly into um, working, you know, 2007 or so. And, but I've been with Sandy for, for the whole, my whole career. Um, yes. So that, that consistency. Um, and what they did, which I don't think a lot of managers do, some do, and I'll give them credit. You know, I always think of a manager and an agent, the difference between a manager and an agent. An agent is the one who gets you the work and, or gets you the audition and closes the deal, negotiates the deal. Managers are people who manage your career and create possibilities for you. So through Vic and Sandy, they would have me come in with dummy sides, sides that had already been cast already, as if I was coming into to audition for them. So mm -hmm. I'd wait in the their, you know, kind of like little waiting area, come in the office, audition, and then we talk about it and what I can improve and, and all that stuff. And at that point, coming out of grad school, I had monologues. So I was doing monologues for them and doing it like a theater audition, you know, working on my voice, you know, like shouting it, looking past, like looking past them and, you know, um, filling the room with my voice and my emotions. And I think they, you know, I remember Vic saying once, you don't have to shout. <laughs> you don't have to shout to let me know what you're feeling, even if you're angry. Um, hmm. And so, through this process, I kept doing it back from me. I wasn't even a client of theirs, but they were giving me time in, in a busy time for managers. And um, it was like pilot season, the kind of the beginning of pilot season and the heart of pilot season, where they were throwing me these, you know, random sides that they thought I'd be good for and having me come in after I kind of went through my monologues. And they were like, all right, now we're ready to kind of throw some sides at you. You know, it must have been six, 10 times I went in for them. And all of a sudden they started sending me out for stuff. Um, and the second thing they sent me out for was porn and chicken. Um, and I booked it. Um, and it was the first time too that I read for a part. I was supposed to be part of the porn and chicken club, um, but I had read for the part and I got cast. And then I show up and or I get the script and I, I find out what I'm cast as and it's not the part I auditioned for. When I, and I was like confused by that. Um, so that was like an early lesson in like, when you're auditioning for a lot of, it's a student thing that takes place on a college campus and there are a lot of student roles, they're not gonna 
individually read every person that speaks. They'll choose a few sides, read everyone, and then cast everyone based on their choices into the other roles. And so I, I played interviewed student, um, one of the few characters I've had with no name. Um, I take pride in no name. Uh, I, I pr take pride in name characters. That means yep. at least someone says your name or you have an identity. Um, and uh, it was also the first experience I had with improv um, on set. I had been doing improv with a, a, a group for a couple years on my own after school, but it was the first time in on camera that I had been asked to like continue the scene as if, you know, as if it was uh, going to be live coverage of a newsfeed. So it was like a news reporter um, and, and a student that is just walking on campus. She's like, hey, have you heard about the new show? I was like, no. And, you know, and I, I said my lines and then we continued on. And the, the, the button of what they used in the, the actual movie um, was the improv, was the improv line. And nice. uh, we watched it with a group of friends and it was like, got a big laugh. And it was like, ah, my coming of age, my first appearance on TV as a, as a professional actor. Congratulations. Well, you're- you can't you're find it anywhere, by the way. It's nowhere to be seen. It's not on any of the streaming services. I think there's a version on YouTube somewhere, but it's like someone taped it off their television. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, my first one, again, your first one was, you know, porn and chicken. My first one, I was a uh, featured extra uh, on a independent flick. I don't remember the name. Again, I don't know if it's if it's anywhere around, but it ended up being a uh, a gay, you know, kind of a comedy. And I was there smoking a cigarette. I don't smoke. So they asked me to smoke a cigarette. I, I said, I'm sorry, guys, I don't smoke. So yeah, they yeah, said, yeah. Oh, but just pretend and we're going to we're going to cut things out. So I did it. So my first you know, ever film is in a gay movie uh, smoking a cigarette. So, you know, all of us, Hollywood changes people. And that's that's what it's about. What's really interesting about that is actually my first role in a film after grad school um, was not that. It, that was that came a couple years or a year after I graduated. The the actual film that I did right after graduation. So my graduation had happened um, at the new school. Um, and then there was the, you know, that was the school graduation. And then the huge kind of all new school graduation, the undergrad, the grad school, the big ceremony was actually in Radio City Music Hall. Um, so on the day that we had to be there, the, this writer director had contacted the, you know, I guess New York schools, other schools, Carnegie Mellon, NYU, a couple of the grad schools, the acting schools, because he wanted actors that looked like teenagers to audition for this, these brothers in a gay coming of age story film. Um, and so I, the two brothers, one was jock, athlete, good looking, popular, the younger brother. Yeah. The older brother was struggling with his sexuality, was picked on, um, didn't fit in, felt awkward. And so as a person, I felt like right in between those two characters. I was an athlete, but I also, for you know, being a late bloomer and you know being picked on because 
you know, I had a high voice and, you know, hadn't hit puberty at a certain point. Um, that I felt, I felt what the character, the, uh, so it was called Dorian Blue. So I felt what the Dorian character felt like. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I asked to audition for both. Um, and right after my audition, that day, day of graduation from the actor studio drama school, I get called back in and asked if I could read another part. And the other part was a character named Spooky um, that was to be the character Dorian's first kiss and first sexual experience in high school. Um, mm. And uh, was it as a character that even for Dorian freaked Dorian out. And so it was a, a character that they called Spooky as a nickname because he was that weird guy who sat all alone, that everyone picked on, that everyone was, you know, too afraid because he stared at you and did weird stuff. And so went outside in, in the, the waiting room, looked at the sides. It was only a short scene of like, you know, five or six lines. And most of it was just staring and, and basically creeping out Dorian. And so I came back in, read the part, and then said, you got it. And, you know, we'll give you the information. We'll give you the details. And they said, he's going to dance to a, a, a song, and we'll give you the, the song. Um, and I did a dance, The Last Train to Clarksville. I made up my own dance. And it was like that was my first independent film experience. Took the train up to Albany, shot the yeah. film, two or three separate days, came back down. Um, and that film, like, did the festival circuit and won a lot of awards. Um, and it was a great, it's a great film if you have Dorian Blues, um, but gay coming of age story. Yeah. So, well, listen, you know, for a kid who loved Halloween, your first role was spooky. So I think that's, you yes. know, there's and my some... first kiss on camera was with a man. Yes. Well, that, I, I did. Well, I guess, yeah, it was, it was my first mm -hmm. kiss on camera. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Hollywood. Uh, and that's, that's the industry. Exactly. Um, yeah. So in 2004, you did Law and Order. That was kind of your your you know first big uh, uh, network, and then for a period of about six years. And again, you you've done stuff. You continued working, but for a period of about six years until 2010, I think. Now um, you were just uh, you know grinding and trying to get in there until you got your first regular uh, gig uh, on TV. Um, during that time, how was it? Were you you know, at any point thinking, hey, I, this may not work out. I, I'm kind of getting stuff, but I'm not getting enough to where I feel like I have a foothold. Um, well, so 2004, I did Law and Order. Um, yeah. 2004 was when Dorian Blues had run the festival thing. So at the same time I was doing, like, I literally, and this happens to me a lot, things overlap, and it's fun, but it's also like when there's nothing going on, it makes it seem more dire or <laughs> desolate. Um, but I was in the middle of auditioning for the Law and Order when planning my trip to the San Jose Film Festival, Cinequest um, in San Jose. And so I was planning to go that weekend and I basically got a call back for the Law and Order and had to pretty much go straight to the airport after my audition. Um, and found out while I was there on, you know, walking around the festival grounds at, you know, the campus grounds at San Jose, um, that I got the role while I was about to see my first 
you know, yeah. you know, film, independent film role on screen. Um, and so that led to other auditions because I feel like in New York, maybe not now, but then, for you to be taken seriously and to be considered uh, legit, you had yeah. to have one of the law and orders on your resume. That yeah. was like, whether you're a Broadway actor, theater actor, uh, film actor, TV actor, coming out of school, that law and order gig was like the coronation. Um, also, it's how I got my union card. So, um, or when I finally had to get my union card and could afford it, could afford the initiation fee, which is important, right? I got paid enough to pay the initiation fee without yeah. having to add money to it. Um, but yeah, so the law and order led to a lot of other auditions and one of the auditions that it led to was a pilot that I had been auditioning for and testing for. And this is what you don't see on a lot of resumes and on IMDb is all the close calls. So in that time, I had auditioned for a pilot with, um, with John Larroquette from Night Court, right? Uh, to play his son. I had t tested for it, like I come out to LA. I had tested for um, an, uh, a show where I was gonna play Fred Willard's son, right? Um, and um, so that, that project called Spellbound, which was my first kind of foray into what, we, what actors or TV shows call testing. You test mm -hmm. for the studio, you test for the network, and then they decide if they wanna cast you as that series regular. Um, it's not necessarily the screen test you think of like back in the day, like in the 50s and 60s, 40s. Um, but so basically I was testing for shows that and what just wasn't getting them um, mm -hmm. until that project came back around. The character was younger, there was a different uh, script and they were doing it for a different studio um, or different network. So it was originally an NBC show produced by Warner Brothers and then it became a Warner Brothers shoe show produced for the Fox network, like Fox, yeah. not studios, but network. So I auditioned again. I got a long story. It's a, it's a two year process of this audition. I finally got the role and basically had to leave and do it in three days after I got it um, to LA. So I'm in LA for two weeks and doing this, the biggest gig I ever got, my parents were uh, um, Barry Bostwick and uh, Christine Baranski played my parents in this pilot. Um, yeah. And it was a really funny pilot. It was like bewitched, but instead of yeah. a, a female witch, it was a male witch. Um, and we were a part of a, a witch family. So I was the younger slacker brother that wasn't good at spells, but only really good at this, the spells that got to see girls bend over or like, you know, like, you know, uh, walking great. hormone, um, yep. but like not a good a slacker with the real good spells. Um, yep. So I had that experience and I try to, you know, use that, you know, my manager helped me get an agent from that experience. And into moving into LA from that was a huge decision I made when that show didn't get picked up. I had this bank account full of money um probably enough to last for six months to move and last for six months so i was like 
what do I do? Do I use this momentum? I met all these agents that are going to send me out for other pilots um, and see if I could book another one, right? Move to LA for pilot season. Like people used to do it for pilot season. And I quickly realized to rent the furnished apartment, the amount of money that I had to do that in LA or even in the Valley where I, I live um, was going to cost me way more money in six months than renting and putting my roots down for a year, getting into a year lease for something that was more affordable for me. And yes, I had to get a job and support myself through these auditions. Um, and it was check to check for a while. You know, there's been these periods of time where it's check to check. And, you know, even to this day, cyclic, your cyclic success level of getting a certain amount of gigs, getting a certain amount of money in your bank account, either using that money for a car or to invest in an apartment like I did, um, or just stretch that money out for as long as possible so mm -hmm. that going into an audition, you don't have to feel like you need to book this to survive. Um, so that's been the, the struggle in the, in that time has been to maintain the momentum and keep the momentum going and keep my energy positive and forward and focused. Um, while at the same time, avoiding that extra factor that I'd have to juggle in an audition room that is the survival instinct of money life you know um and that's why i'm kind of feel lucky that i don't have any kids at this point because especially now in this the pandemic it that's just that's just another factor that i see my friends struggling with that feels that makes it i feel harder or it seems like it makes it, it gives you much more emotionally yeah. peaks and valleys both but I feel like that's a factor that maybe at this point I am glad or not ready to do. I mean, I'm sure at some point, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so old. So I have to, have to make it, you know, they say shit or get off the pot. Um, you know, but, uh, you're not old. If you're old, I'm old and I'm not old. Brother. Uh, one month from today, I turned yeah. 44. I know. Yeah, I turned 45 uh, three months ago. Well, happy birthday to us. Yes, happy birthday to us. Yeah. Listen, yeah, it's it's mid 40s. It's it's where it's at. Uh, yeah. It's it's great great age. Um, I I totally understand on the kids. You know, I'm blessed um, to have a wife who still hasn't divorced me uh, after 20 almost 21 years. We have yeah. a almost 16 year old girl and an almost 11 year old uh, boy. And they're awesome. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but yeah, yeah. it is restrictive because I can go to New York. I can go to LA for six months and just, uh, you know, do stuff that I need to do from the acting perspective. It just, it's not happening. Yeah. Right. Um, that's the way it is. And it's okay, but you, you're, uh, you have to work right. with the circumstance. Yeah. 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 So I get you. Thank you for, uh, for letting me know about that. Now, again, kind of the project that I know you from, yeah, uh, is the other end of the line with uh, with Jesse Metcalf and Larry Miller, and yeah. that's where I saw you first. I'm like, 
hey, that's a great, uh, that's a great role. That's a good guy. I like him. And the the speech that uh, you know Jesse's character gives at your wedding, uh, at your character's wedding, yeah. uh, is is still a speech that moves me. I, I recently rewatched the movie uh, during COVID times again, catching up on on stuff that I uh, I really enjoyed, and it still moves me. And again, I've been married for so long, but it still moves me that that speech. Uh, we're gonna link it, you know, right below this video. I want people to watch it because it still it still applies, and uh, yeah. I really enjoyed that movie. So. Yeah, the you know, it wasn't that movie. So I there was a um, a movie that I booked right before that that was a very similar character mm-hmm. um, with Jesse Bradford that I actually moved. It, it 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 gave me the opportunity that and and having some commercials running and residuals and TV shows that I was getting residuals from um, and saving money allowed me to with that movie where I had to shoot it in New York um, mm-hmm. for six weeks and be available in New York, allowed me to quit my job and not work, yes. you know, kind of a day job yeah. for, you know, years. Um, and which led into the full court press of booking a series of indie films that mm-hmm. led to that one shortly after I actually met my wife right before I did that film. Um, And there's another thing, the irony is like I had done, I had booked a horror film that was putting me in Wisconsin for two, two and a half weeks, um, that that October, September, October. And so I was still auditioning for other stuff while I I knew I had that role and was leaving at a certain point. And I had auditioned for the other end of the line, just one audition on tape, um, and was in Wisconsin filming that Cinema Verite uh, um, project and having a great time. And get a call from my, two things happened. I got a call that I got the other end of the line and would have to leave for India three days after I got back to LA. <laughs> so my passport, my my immunizations, my shots, all that my medical stuff that they do for insurance and for you to travel, I'd have to do all that in the three days that I got back. Um, okay. And then leave for India for three weeks. Um, and so that type of stuff was a whirlwind. In that same, period of time, actually right before I got that role, my, mm. my manager, Vic, passed away while I was on that film. Um, mm. While I was doing Law and Order, my grandmother has passed away. But, it, you know, those things to me, it's like, it. I feel like as an actor, part of what you learn in school and what you you try to perfect is bringing your emotional experience your life experience, your um, your intellectual experience, whether it's reading, exploring, what your hobbies are, you bring that into every role, right? And then you start to become a real adult with kids, you know, yep. friends and family, you know, passing away, things in the world happening, bills that you have to learn 
to cordon off those things that would adversely affect this particular project or this particular scene. So if I have to be happy-go-lucky and fun and, and, and a joy, joyful character in a scene and, you know, I'm having a real-life tragedy or I'm, you know, being evicted or whatever it is, I haven't been evicted, but it's it happens, right? And, you know, you got to pay the bills, you got to do all this stuff. It, it's this weird back and forth. Like for all you're growing up, it's like you learn to let loose of the inhibitions that you learn as an adult. Then you have to add in your experience of emotional spectrum of all the things you've dealt with in your life. Um, and then you could imagine dealing with. So you only come from your own experience and then you can imagine what other people have to go through. And that helps you get into these other characters and other experiences. And then you have to consciously be aware of what's going on in your real life so that it doesn't seep in or deter you from accomplishing what you want to in the scene as an actor, as a character, as a person. Um, and both of those projects where people, you know, close to me passed away, you know, they happened to be projects where I was not happy-go-lucky, right? Um, so I could literally filter my current emotions into that, which is sometimes a little dangerous if it's too traumatic of an experience. But um, the 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 <clears throat> the fact that I got the other end of the line was the total polar opposite of my my uh, my manager passing away, and somehow I had to like use what I could from one experience and block out what I could from the other and do this film. Um, and then go back three days on the phone, back and forth with LA, organizing doctor's appointments, you know, getting my passport renewed, you know, mm -hmm. speeding all that stuff up and doing that stuff. But those three weeks in India also taught me great lesson about like doing a film in another country totally totally different system of government system of society you know close closer than communism but it's the the structure of the caste system was still you know caste is a book that's been going around now that i hear is a great read and actually um i'm very interested in it but seeing a place where the actual caste system existed at a point in India and to a degree still exists. You have like, you know, this is me coming from America where you've seen the spectrum of, you know, homeless to mansions to all this stuff. And yeah. the stuff is pretty spread out, but to go to Mumbai and see deeply religious people living on the street, celebrating Diwali, that was the, the, the holiday at that point, because um, mm -hmm. it was in November um, or October, and then also seeing these shanty towns of shacks, almost like the depression in, in America, shacks um, next to the most gorgeous hotels and skyscrapers I had seen in my life. Yeah. It, it was a jarring experience for me. Um, and my character never left the US in, in the project. Like, so in the state of, the actual plot of the movie, 
I mm. am in either New York or San Francisco. Yep. And never having been to San Francisco, I didn't know what that was like. So I could kind of incorporate a new experience of being in a hotel and, you know, not knowing the, the area. But the, the place in New York, I had known. So that was something that I had to be like, all right, shut that, you know, shut these weird experiences I've had at the airport and on the street yeah. and, you know, with begging children coming up asking for money and food and play this, you know, sidekick, you know, yep. kind of character that, that gives him the, the voice of reason speeches and um, encourages him to go after the girl. Um, yeah. That's interesting. I did not know the whole thing was shot in uh, India. I had no idea. That's good thing. I for think me. there's one shot that I went to San Francisco for. So they yeah. have, there's one shot that, um, uh, Charlie, uh, is his name Charlie or, um, Wait, I, 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 Charlie, I think, right? Are you talking um, about the, the hotel scene with, uh, with Larry or? So there's, there's, uh, a scene where they're in the water by the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes. Okay. They, I, they, they tore around San Francisco. That yeah. stuff was in San Francisco. Um, I'm not sure yeah. about the house stuff. I don't think, I think the house stuff was in India. But the only shot I was in that was actually in the United States was like a limo shot of us looking out the window and you see like we're, we're about to drive onto the Golden Gate Bridge or you see the skyline of, of yeah. San Francisco. That was it. So I went to San Francisco for like two a day and a half for yeah. that one shot, and everything else took place in India in, in a really nice hotel. But yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it like working uh, working with Larry Larry Miller, you know, comedy genius? Uh, anything awesome. interesting? Any kind of pickups that uh, you started using after? Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could say this. Um, so anyway, I could say that Larry and I. Um, Larry, we're both Jewish. We're both from New York. He's from Long Island. I'm from Brooklyn. We yeah. shared a lot of, we didn't work every day. So we shared a lot of off camera time together in the hotel, mm -hmm. eating at um, a restaurant or two. Um, but Larry was kind of a bit of a germaphobe and it's not the cleanest, uh, you know, type city sanitation, you know, as you saw in uh, Slumdog mm -hmm. Millionaire. You yeah. see, that is what it is. If there's piles of garbage and and dumps all over the place and people, you know, kind of selling food off the street and, you know, picking through garbage, it's, it's you know, it's a sad state when you have people that are running these multi-conglomerate international corporations and, you know, communications services like, you know, take place in the movie. But anyway, all my time with Larry was we, we basically had breakfast pretty much every morning that we could um, and enjoyed the time that we had in the hotel. Um, he was actually nice enough to, because the hotel we were in was, I would say not a five-star hotel. It was not the nicest hotel. And yeah. it's an indie film, low budget. It's shot in India, saving yep. money instead of shooting yep. in America. So, um, mm -hmm. but really, you know, production well run, um, but we, were it's still an indie film and he along with jesse had moved out of the hotel into a nicer hotel and mm -hmm. when larry was done and going home he was nice enough to basically 
yield his hotel room to me for the last wow. couple nights, um, which was in a different part, a more urban, um, less remote part of, uh, of Mumbai. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was nice. And we shared a lot. We shared, you know, he's much more Jewish than I. So he, I think he was, because of the religious aspect of a lot of what we were seeing, you know, there was yeah. a lot of fireworks displays. There was a lot of, um, during a very religious holiday, Diwali, um, yeah. spelled Diwali. Um, but it's basically like Festival of Lights. So it's like Hanukkah for Jews. Um, yep. but, you know, and so you saw and the, the lower and more desolate or more impoverished the people, the more mm-hmm. religious they were. So you saw the very big night where everyone celebrates at the beach for the, the whole night which was where our hotel was right off the beach fireworks all night to get there you had men you know in religious garb not walking there but crawling in the way that every step or two they would bend down walk and then kind of like kneel down then kind of lay down fully face first on the concrete and kiss the floor and then get up, walk a couple steps, do the same thing. And men and people were walking the same way that whole time to the beach, like kneeling, lying down, kissing the floor, getting up, kneeling. That's how they got, I was just like the, the, the devoutness of it um, was, I think, uh, kind of like, awe-inspiring um you know and, and seeing a d- predominantly um hindu and muslim religions whereas christianity and judaism were secondary religions where mm-hmm. i had grown up with those being primary um yeah. was definitely enlightening and you know for some people i think maybe it would be jarring but i mm-hmm. i was absorbing it, was, it looked very Interesting. I mean, it's just an interesting thing to see also animals walking on the street, you know, like cows. Um, The other two things, too, was the cultural differences that you never think about as an American or a European that grows up in a certain society where to say yes, you go. Right. And, you know, and then you're right. So and to say no, you go no. Um, and then you say, how are you feeling? Eh, so, so, right. That's what this means to me there. Every time I asked a crew member or my, the makeup, uh, the stylist, the hairstylist, um, Mm -hmm. a question and they meant to say nod. Yes. They would go like this, right. Just to think that little simple thing of a nod into a, a head bobble is the difference between a yes and a so, so um hmm. between two cultures and i would never have known it had i not gone there and the also the this also is a is a, a spectrum or an arc towards like the the richer more wealthier classes i think have adapted and incorporated more western habits and and cultures whether it's shaking hands or you know nodding hmm. um but the, the lower classes and the the affectionate nature and the the weirdness of seeing grown men holding hands that were not gay um, that that is an accepted form of 
like, you know, when you, you know, kind of walking down the street with your buddy and you got your arm around, uh, you know, his back and patting him on the back or like whatever. That's how you would walk, you know, down the street with a buddy. And there would be people just standing, guys just standing on the street holding hands and not in a sexual way. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's a very enlightening, sometimes, you know, jarring, odd thing to adapt to and to understand. but to see that and to understand a different culture and to, to see that um, informs my life and informs the work in a way that it's probably intangible to me. Yeah, I to me, it's all fascinating. I, I want to learn all that stuff. To me, sociology was always, you know, one of the more interesting uh, you know, topics. I, yeah. I want to know about people. I want to know what uh, what makes them different. It, it's, it's all fascinating. So totally. very I thank yeah. you. I I did not know about the holding hands part. I knew about you know this. I knew about yeah. you know use one hand for one thing and one for another. Um, yeah. I, I I knew other aspects because I have Indian friends. I never knew about the hand holding. Very cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, if we don't talk about Beauty and the Beast, we're going to get killed by uh, by people who love you. So yeah. in 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 2012, you arrived uh, quote unquote, uh, and uh, you got uh, to be a regular in Beauty and the Beast which I will readily admit, I'm an idiot. I didn't watch it when it uh, when it came out. I just watched the pilot literally today in prep for the interview and was blown away because I had no idea that Kristen Crick is 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 the lead in the in the series. I'm like, what have I been doing? I'm, I'm a huge fan of her. Where was I all this time? Yeah. So, uh, well, if you were to cast the beauty at who else would you cast? I agree. Early thirties. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. So uh, you got cast in that project. Um, did you know kind of when you were shooting the, uh, uh, I'm assuming there was a pilot, but uh, did you know when you were shooting the pilot of, hey, this this thing I think is going to get picked up and it feels uh, feels special? Um, it's interesting because I had done um, Life Unexpected for two shortened seasons. And that, in every aspect, cast, crew, um, even network executives, mm -hmm. I the vibe to me, in a different circumstance, that show felt like it could have run for years, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was a family-type show, um, themes and, and um, characters, in, you know, kind of ran the spectrum of, what people watched and, you know, what people would want to watch week to week, you know, especially when there were 22, 24 episodes <laughs> for shows. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that felt like it was going to last forever and didn't. So coming into Beauty and the Beast, which the pilot was directed by the same director that directed me and executive produced Life Unexpected, that's yeah. how he brought me into you know, for the, the producers of uh, Beauty and the Beast. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where I had been testing for all these roles and Beauty and the Beast, the, basically the biggest gig I've had, uh, you know, 70 or so episodes and four seasons worth yeah. of a character. And I didn't test for it. I went in, met the, met the director, the casting directors, 
Gary Fleeter was there as the director, um, executive producer that worked on Life Unexpected. Brought me in for the role was those two short scenes in the pilot. Um, I did the scenes and he basically said, I have to leave, but you should do it a couple more times and get a good take. Um, and he, he basically looked at the producer and said, see, he walked out. There was other people waiting in the waiting room, but he had to go somewhere else, which was weird. Um, yeah. Not my fault um, yeah. that I had friends waiting to audition for the same role and they see the director walk out and never come back. Um, but we did it like two or three times each scene. And they were asking me as much as they were asking each other if that was good. And, you know, I told my agent and like a week later, um, well, I, I emailed with Gary and he's like, I think they're going <clears> to, <throat> I think they're going to offer you the role. Um, and then my agent was like, yeah, you're, you, you don't, you don't need to test. They, they want you. And I'm like, wait, what? I don't have to go through the grueling process of signing a contract for seven years, seeing how much you would get paid if the show lasted for seven years, then auditioning and not getting it. Wait, but wait, no, you got to the next audition. Then you audition again and then you wait. Did I get it or not? And then you get it and then you have to wait three months or four months to find out if the pilot got picked up. Um, oh my so God. that was the long answer. The, the, the short answer was, you know, I don't know because of my experience on Life Unexpected what yeah. was worthy of getting picked up. I knew I liked the character and the arc of the story. Um, yeah. I knew that the character was the voice of reason and was the character that um, that might rub the fans of the, the relationship the wrong way, but he was speaking towards the logical end of things. Like you're risking your life. You know, we're hiding from people that want to kill us. And yep. here you are doing like crazy things because you want to get laid, right? Yep. Um, so uh, obviously slowly I realized there was more than that. And uh, I, you know, I was turned into a, you know, supporter of Vincat as they call them, uh, yep. Vincent and Catherine. Um, yep. but I always get cool names, and when I got the character J.T. Forbes, I felt mm. like that was a name that would live in infamy. <laughs> I felt like J.T. Forbes, I also played Math, uh, which was a unique name on, on Life Unexpected. I always get weird name characters, and I feel like that's always a good sign when either I audition or the show is up for renewal or pickup. And honestly, I didn't know, like, I wasn't sure about the pilot. I saw, I saw the pilot, and I'll be honest, I wasn't sure because there was several aspects of the pilot. The acting, I thought, was all good. I felt mm -hmm. like the, the chemistry between them, still to this day, I don't see that chemistry between most actors on, mm -hmm. on any show, like between uh, Jay Ryan and, um, and Kristen. It, yeah. The, the the chemistry just like was there, right? And that was what stood out to me. And the, knowing that the president of the network, CW, Mark Pedowitz, was the person who brought this project into the fold and was a big fan of the original and wanted to redo it for uh, a modern audience um, that 
that gave us a leg up. So I felt like it was a possibility. And Kristen, with her fan base um, and her history on the CW and the WB, uh, mm-hmm. that she she alone, the chemistry, and then Mark were going to help this get past the finish line. Um, yeah. So also getting picked up for a full season is, you know, or I guess it's always 13 episodes. And then you get, you find out halfway through whether it gets, you know, picked up for the back nine. Um, but yeah, it was an exciting, exciting time to jump into a show only a year or two after my last show. Um, Mm -hmm. And especially at a point when I needed money, you know, (laughs) I needed money. My previous, you know, bank account from the show before, which I wasn't in every episode, you know, was dwindling. 